First Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. 1 Corinthians 14, 33-40. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they, de- they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our fortress and our redeemer. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So a movie in 2014 called The Wolf of Wall Street was directed by Martin Scorsese, uh, stars Leonardo DiCaprio, and it it's kind of looks at the greed of stockbrokers and bankers on Wall Street, and yet is famous for the fact that it's controversial in how people understood the point of the movie. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio said this about the, the movie. He said, The film may be misunderstood by some. I hope people understand we're not condoning the behavior in the film, that we're indicting it. Ultimately, I think if anyone watches this movie at the end of The Wolf of Wall Street, they're going to see we're not all con- about condoning this behavior. In fact, we're saying there's something that's in, in our culture that needs to be looked at and needs to be talked about. 
Um, what's funny is the criticism of that film, like it's a satire, but it sort of glorifies greed, was the same criticism for a movie two genera- or a generation before, Wall Street, which was an Oliver Stone film, starred Michael Douglas. There's a line in that film, greed is good. Uh, Michael Douglas says it sort of became the banner statement about the baby boomers of the 80s. And again, was supposed to be a satire. Now, I think it's a funny case study because I want to ask this question. How is it that twice, like, you know, almost 30 years apart, that the same movies about the same subjects were that misunderstood by American audiences? Well, at root, the question is one of hermeneutics. Now, you may not know that word. Uh, Hermeneutics is simply a study of how we interpret, how we understand what we're supposed to take from a piece of literature, uh, from art, how, how we understand sort of the message that's being communicated. And today, as we look at these two passages, 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14, these are notoriously difficult passages that are about, for us this morning, understanding hermeneutics. How do we interpret what is being said here? There have been a river of ink that has been spilled on these passages. Forests of trees have died uh, as people have debated and talked about these things. Um, but I'll say this. Uh, as Reformed Christians like our church who believe the Bible is God's Word, one of the criticisms that's often been levied against uh, pastors like me is that we sort of like to cherry pick through the Bible. We like to hunt and pick for our favorite passages and ignore other ones. Um, And what's sort of ironic about that is that being a pastor of a Reformed Christian church that believes in God's Word, I don't get that luxury. I mean, one of the challenges is I have to preach through all parts of it, even the parts that like fit our cultural context more or in line with that, some which are really unpopular. Um, So today we're going to look at all kinds of questions with hard questions about hermeneutics. How do we interpret as we look at these two passages? Um, And at the end of the sermon today, I know that nobody is going to agree about this. And my goal is not actually that we all agree on these passages. My goal is that you would be able to understand and respect our church's position with regard to how we understand gender and authority in our church. You'd be clear on that, even if you disagree. You'd be like, I understand where you get this. So here's uh, my outline for you this morning. Uh, One, it's sticky. Two, head coverings. Three, headship. Four, affirmations and denials. But before I do so, can I just say this? I know, I I know that it's really hard, uh, even as you heard these passages read, to hear a man teach on this. I just want to acknowledge that that's an odd thing. That's a hard thing. Um, I do want to acknowledge that a lot of my material for this sermon today um, has come from a woman, has come from Kathy Keller and her book, uh, which I would recommend, Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. It's really, really helpful. Um, She's a pastor's wife in our denomination who's done a great deal of writing, and she's the editor for uh, Tim Keller and all the Redeemer uh, churches and their publications. So, I would highly recommend that to you. So first, it's sticky. Um, Today, I want to talk about gender and culture because we can't get away from culture when we talk about gender. Uh, Even though gender doesn't come from culture, gender is always expressed 
in cultural norms. Let me say that again. Even though gender doesn't come from culture, we talked about it, it's creational, it still is always expressed in culture. and It's mediated by culture. Um, gender comes in cultural norms that vary from place to place. So um, I want you to think about this like a candied apple like you might get at the state fair. You know, you know what I'm talking about, the candied apple? They, they, um, gender's like that. Gender's the apple. Culture is the candy coating. And depending on what time and place in history, um, that apple might be swirled around, right, in something that tastes a little bit different in various places and times. And yet it always has the coating. And, and this is where my analogy breaks down, like most of my sermon analogies, right? Uh, because unlike in nature... You can't get gender without a candy coating on it. We live in culture. Uh, It's always mediated by culture. Um, This is why the gender specialties that I talked about last week, remember these? From Genesis chapter 2, securing, giving rest, Um, firstborn, promoter, Um, initiator, ezer, all of those are expressed in radically different ways in different cultures and times and places, and God just seems kind of actually tickled at the variety of that. He seems to delight in that. Um, but doesn't that make things confusing? I mean, it makes co- things confusing for us when we talk about gender because gender is always expressed in culture. And so um, it can especially be confusing when we talk about the Bible with this. Um, every culture and time and place, because of common grace, has parts of the culture that are more in line with Scripture and parts that are less in line. And and so we need to think critically about what it means that we say that gender is mediated through culture and how we understand the Bible. See, Scripture, I want you to hear this, Scripture is always both enculturated and timeless. We say both of those. So what does it mean that Scripture is enculturated? Well, the Old Testament is written in what language, class? Hebrew, right? Well, the New Testament is written in Greek, which was the common language of the Roman Empire. Uh, Jesus spoke Aramaic. God revealed himself to Abraham in the middle of, of uh, Ur. I mean, like, there's just all, all of what we receive in Scripture comes through culture. There is a culture that this is being um, mediated through. And yet, here's the lazy thing. This is what I find is really common, particularly on social media. We have a lazy way of approaching the Bible that is like, whatever that I like that's in line with my cultural preferences, that's good. That's what we keep. The things that aren't in line with my culture or my preferences, that's stuff we get rid of, that we we do away with. And, you know, the most famous... um, person who did this, their hermeneutics looked this way, was Thomas Jefferson. So if you go to Monticello today, you can see Jefferson's Bible on display. I saw this years ago at the Smithsonian, and it looks like lace because he went through with a pair of scissors and cut out the parts of the Bible that he disagreed with, the parts that didn't fit his preference or cultural moment. And the thing is, we have a tendency to do that today. That's a very common thing. We may not be as honest about it as like putting it on display, but like this is, happens all the time. What I don't like is not, that, that's culture. No, no, no. All of it's enculturated, but we also believe it's also all timeless. This is God's Word. It's, his authority comes from His Word. Um, I want you to think about this. Have you ever noticed that Jesus 
received the Bible, the Hebrew Old Testament, entirely as God's authoritative word. He doesn't say, disregard these parts. He says all of it comes from God. Um, and, and like it or not, so our hearts, we have to find some way to be obedient to what we're reading here. To say, yes, it's, it's cult- enculturated, but it's also timeless. And I need to find ways, we need to find ways as a community under His authority, under His Word, where we say, how am I going to be obedient? Not whether am I, but how do we obey this? So let's test this out this morning. Two t- case studies. 1 Corinthians 11, head coverings. 1 Corinthians 14, headship. Let's look at both of these together. Um, how do we apply this? Head coverings. Let's start with 1 Corinthians 11. Um, what, is, what does Paul think about long hair on women or short hair on women? Uh, should we care what Paul thinks about those things? Um, what, what does he mean in saying, verse 15, and pull out your, pull out your bulletin. I'm going to make you work today, right? This is not a, hey, this isn't an inspirational milk sermon. This is the meat sermon, and you better come ready to chew, okay? We're going to work today. So your late service, you've had coffee. You better be ready to dig in. All right, um, what does it mean? Pull out your bulletin. In verse 15, long hair is her glory given to her for a covering. Does that mean Paul would go, if he went to Africa and visited with the, the, the Wudab tribe, where women have shaved heads and men have long hair and wear makeup, would he go to them and say, you're out of conformity? Would he have confronted Hudson Taylor, who was the famous missionary to China, who wore a long braid down the back and wore scholar's robes, looked like he was wearing a dress, would he would say, knock it off, Hud? You know, would, if he, would he have confronted him? Um, See, Paul argues, and I want you to, again, hold up your bulletin. He argues in this passage about what is proper, what is a disgrace. Now, this is, this is fascinating. Look at verses um, 11 and 6. He uses the term disgrace there. Verse 13, proper. Those are uncommon terms for Paul. Here they're best translated as failing or succeeding to meet expected norms. So, this is about decorum. This is about cultural conformity. Look at verses 5 and 6. It's a, it's a statement where he's talking about what is in line or what is embarrassing in that cultural moment. It'd be like he, he coming to our church today and saying, you know, guys shouldn't wear skirts to church. That's embarrassing if they do so, unless you're in Scotland, right? You know, come on, hang with me, people. I know this is serious, but hang with me. Right, so right, um, he's coming and pointing out an, an, a practice, verse 16. Head covering practice, as he's showing us, was common. Long hair was common in gendered patterns of the Roman Empire. See, verse 13, he calls them, use your own judgment, judge for yourselves. What's the basis of that judgment? Verse 14, doesn't the nature of things teach you? Now, he's not talking about biological nature. Let's think about biological nature would be if, if no one interfered with their hair growing, men and women, most of us, present company excluded, would have long hair. Come on. <laughs> right? Most of us would have long hair. But he's not talking about the biological nature of things. He's talking about the nature of things or the natural feelings that people practice in contemporary culture. He's not, he's not going against Numbers chapter 6. Numbers 6 describes how Nazarites can grow their hair long for a religious vow. In fact, we know that in Acts chapter 18, Paul himself grew his hair long 
as part of a religious vow on his way to Jerusalem. So he's not like long hair on men is always wrong, short hair on women is always wrong. Rather, this is where we need hermeneutics, principles for how you interpret. And we're going to use the same ones throughout this sermon. I'm going to give you three of them. You can write these down. The first one is this, intertextuality. That is that Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. Second one is the cloudy helps interpret, I mean, the, the queer interprets the cloudy. You look places where things are more queer, and that helps you understand where things are less queer in the Bible. And third is this, is there a deeper theological point that Paul or a New Testament writer is pointing to that goes back to um, other parts of Scripture, other parts of theology that's really significant? So let's test it. Let's test all those things, three things here. So first, intertextuality. So anywhere else in the Bible where we read about long hair being really important or short hair being really important? No. This is the one place he talks about that. Second, the cloudy and the queer. Is there something that clarifies this passage? No. And third, is there some larger point that he is making theologically? And again, no. See, what we find here is in line with what we understand of first century Roman culture. There was a, a writer, a Roman writer named Epictetus, uh, who wrote of this that short hair was out of fashion for women in the first century, long hair was out of fashion for men. Um, of course, Paul is not like, hey, just do whatever the culture says. You know that if you've read anything in first, um, Corinthians 10 or Romans 14 about sacrificing meat to idols. He's not just like, hey, do whatever. Instead, Paul is showing us that your appearance is important for how it communicates about gender. You know, you know, there's a, a, a saying we have today, clothes make the man. Now, that may not, might not be true in a fashion sense, but it means that your outward appearance in our culture to this day, still communicates something about whether you're male or female. People use clothing to communicate about identity and personhood. That's why unisex clothing stores, even in this uh, super gender-fluid society, still don't catch on. People love gendered clothing. And Paul is pointing us to this. Wear your gender-distinguishing clothing into worship. Wear it into worship because this is part of the way God has made the universe in gendered patterns. Now, again, though, we're applying this as a principle, not literally, because there's hermeneutically no reason to apply this in a literal way. So we, we take this like greet one another with a holy kiss, another of Paul's exhortations in the New Testament. We don't smooch on Sundays, very many of us, but we warmly greet each other. Right? We warmly do so. So would Paul have gone to Hudson Taylor and said, knock it off for having a long braid? No. Would he have um, gone to the Woodob tribe and said, women, you can't have shaved heads? No. no. He's saying, you live out your gendered practices in your culture with the way you appear in worship, with your clothing, with the way you outward appear. Um, uh, the Bible wisely never says, hey, dresses are for women, uh, pants are for men. That would not play in Shanghai. Right? Like, um, so what do we do? We obey this passage. How do we pay this passage? We say, we're going to wear our gendered, uh, wear our gender outwardly. And we teach our children the same thing. Hey, look like how God has made you. Um, because gender is real and important. 
See what I'm doing with those three principles? So let's, let's try them on another passage. On 1 Corinthians 14, on headship. That was head coverings. Now to headship. So 1 Corinthians 14, again, look at your bulletin. Let's start with something obvious here. It is clear that Paul is forbidding some practice in that church, some practice with regard to women and speaking. Look at verse 34. The women should keep silent in the church. They are not permitted to speak, but be in submission. And it's clear that Paul is not just addressing a particular cultural situation here. Look at verse 33. He says this is, quote, as in all the churches, this is the practice. So Paul is denying something as a practice for all churches today. So question, what do we do with this? How do, we, how do we think about this? Is this a culturally bound practice that we obey as a principle, or do we obey this in a direct way in our church today? Let's think about this. So let's start with what we know it can't mean. Again, hermeneutical principle number one, intertextuality. It can't mean that women didn't speak at all. It can't mean that. And we know this because you just read 1 Corinthians 11. Look at verse 11, chapter 11, verse 5. He says, Every woman who prays or prophesies, this is in the context of worship, with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So clearly, there is some speaking and praying that women were doing in the church, and that was good. Look, look at uh, chapter 11, verse 2. He praises the Corinthians for maintaining the traditions. The Corinthian church was right in having women involved in a public way in worship in some way. So we know from intertextuality, again, that women were involved in what's called prophesying in the church. The day of Pentecost at Acts chapter 2, um, Paul, uh, Peter stands up and preaches in front of the whole congregation. He says, the Spirit's going to be poured out on your sons and daughters, and men and women will prophesy. We know from Acts chapter 21 that Philip had four daughters who prophesied in the church. We know from this chapter 11, uh, chapter 11 here that um, women were praying and prophesying with head coverings. Clearly, women were not supposed to be involved in no speaking in a public way in the church. So let's move on to the second thing. Uh, let's talk about what we know culturally from the context. Let's start with what you know from this fall. And so if you were tracking with us this fall, we preached through the book of Leviticus. And we know that Leviticus, Old Testament book describing the law of God and, the, and mediating the practices of temple worship and tabernacle worship. Um, there's been a great deal of research on first century Judaism, and it's very clear in the Bible that the worship of the first century church was not based on the temple. And let me show you this, because you already know this. If you hung in with this through Leviticus, you know this. So, class, um, in the New Testament, what is the temple of God? You're right. You are. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay, uh, let's try this one. Class, in the New Testament, who are the priests of God? You are, right? All of us, priesthood of all believers. Okay, class, let me try another one. What is the last and greatest sacrifice? Jesus is, right? And the only sacrifices we bring are two things in the New Testament, sacrifice of praise and our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, right? That means that when we come together, this is not an altar. It's, I always correct people when we talk about coming to the altar. 
this is a table. We're eating on this table, right? That's what we do here. This is the, the connections between Old Testament temple and New Testament church. There's analogy, but there's not correspondence in a direct way. Rather, this is what we find. Um, synagogue was the model for early church worship, not temple. Neither synagogues um, nor early church gatherings had trained permanent clergy, but only occasional traveling, traveling rabbis who were invited to speak. So you see Jesus visiting the synagogue. Let me, let me back up. The temple was in Jerusalem in the first century. People went there for the sacrifices, but synagogues were in all the little towns all over Israel and the Roman Empire. They're places where the Jews came together to study Torah, to study uh, the, the Old Testament Scriptures. And you see Paul and you see Jesus going to go visit these synagogues and speaking. And those are very common occurrence. They would have itinerant speakers or even people within the congregation who would prophesy, who would stand up and speak. And the elders of the synagogue would sit on the front row and they would respond to what was being taught. And they would either respond by saying, Amen, Amen, which meant what that speaker just said is to be copied and appropriated for yourself, or no. And the elders of the church would guard the teaching and say, that is not, or that is, to be obeyed. Now, what was fascinating about Jesus is Jesus would show up in the synagogue, and do you remember what he would say? Sermon on the Mount, Amen, Amen, I say to you. This is what was scandalous about Jesus. He would show up places and take that authority that the elders had for himself. That's why they said he teaches with such authority because he showed up in this. The early church adopted the practices of the Jewish synagogue and for the same reasons. They had no me. They didn't have trained professional clergy, or, and they also didn't have an authoritative compilation of New Testament teaching yet. That was still in seminal form. Those were letters that were being passed around. And the elders would sit up in the front row in the early church and do the same practice. Amen, amen, or no. And the biggest error in the first century early church was false doctrine. You see this over and over in the New Testament letters. And so it's really important to have the elders express their uh, vote of confidence or no confidence in what was being taught. So 1 Corinthians 14, which we're reading this morning, has a heading. If you go back and read this at home in your Bible, usually it'll have a little heading, like mine says, orderly worship. And it's defining for, for us, like Paul's laying out for the Corinthians here, what makes for early church worship, what makes for orderly worship. And you see several things here. He says things like, if you have someone who speaks in tongues, there always has to be an interpreter. Or he says here, um, verse 29, prophecy is limited to two or three people. Two or three people can get up and prophesy. And then, verse 29, the others weigh what is being said. The elders are then saying, Yes or no, right, with this. Um, so it's at this point, hear me clearly, it's at this point when the prophets are being judged that women are told to be silent in the church. It's not no speaking ever. It's at this point that the, they could be silent so the elders can judge. So how do I know that? Well, let's turn to principle number two. The cloudy is interpreted by the clear. There's another passage in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12, where Paul writes, A woman should learn in quietness and in full submission. I do not per permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. This is the other 
passage in the New Testament where there have been like rivers of ink that have flowed and forests of trees that have been killed for our benefit. Um, And Paul, again, is speaking here of a type of teaching that is authoritative in the church. Um, That it's combined with authority. There's teeth to it. It's more clear in 1 Timothy 2 than it is in 1 Corinthians 14. So what's being forbidden to women is not all teaching, not all speaking, but authoritative teaching. The work of the elders is to evaluate the teaching of the church. Um, That function is reserved for the elders alone, those men who are tasked with judging personal and church-wide faithfulness to the apostolic doctrine. This kind of teaching is authoritative for two reasons. One is it's for the final judgment of truth versus heresy, and second, it's combined with the power of discipline. Who can come and be part of God's people, come to the table or, or not? So, Paul affirms headship also by male elders only in the church when, in 1 Corinthians 11, where he ties it back to creation. We talked about this last week, that gender specialties, not gender gifts, not, not men are better at leading or men are better at speaking. That is not at all what's in view in the Bible. There's no statement of better. But the gender specialties of men being firstborn, that's what is what God sets apart to say, this is who will lead. In my, among my people. This is who's going to lead in the church. That doesn't mean, hear me say this very clearly, that doesn't mean that women are less moral, less good, less gifted, less filled with the Spirit, uh, more prone to temptation, uh, more foolish, any of those things. God designed gender for relationship in the church. He designed gender for relationship in the church. And he gives us complementary view of gender, again, for the good of his people. It is a gift. Now, this is the question I always get as a pastor, and I've gotten this for 20 years as a pastor. Why did God do it this way? Why male-only elders and pastors in the church? And the honest answer, to tell you the real truth, is I don't know. If, If God had wanted uniformity, he would not have given us the gift of gender. And he would not have specified things in Scripture. Um, I don't know why men get to be the elders and women don't. I mean, if it were the other way, I guess we would have men who would be like, that's not fair, instead of women. Um, But remember, God isn't interested in symmetry. God loves equality, asymmetry, Uh, unity and diversity. He loves those things, and He purposes those for us, for our good, in our relationships, in our church. Now, let's talk about the most common objection to this. Um, I want to handle the biggest objection, and we can talk about more about this privately later if you want to, but um, the biggest alternative to this that I read about regularly is what I would call trajectory hermeneutics. Now, I started off in seminary. Before I went to Westminster, I went to Princeton Seminary. I got a lot of this back in the mid-1990s. And everything I've read since then on egalitarian roles in the church has had some flavor of this argument. So I'm going to give it to you so you can understand where this is coming from. Trajectory hermeneutics goes like this. Well, we used to think that slavery was okay in the Bible. But as God has given us more light, we've been able to see an arc redemptively, where that is no, that's not okay. And we can see where that goes, and we know that that's wrong. 
Same thing with polygamy. We can see in the Old Testament practice of polygamy, polygamy, but we see over time there's been an arc where this goes, and we know that that's not okay. You know, we have more light now to understand that. Um, We look at women's roles, and we used to think women are uh, subservient to men, but we look at the arc of Scripture, and we look outside, we see where this is going, uh, this trajectory, and we say, see? See where this is going? We do the same thing with homosexuality. We see, like, where it began in the Bible, but we see the arc of where this is going outside, and we see the end point of where this is traveling. Now, that is a very compelling argument. That is a very compelling argument. But there are a couple problems with it. And I just want to be really transparent about, like, I wish that that could, be compe- that, that could work. Here's why it can't. Revelation 22 is very clear in warning us about adding to or taking away from God's Word. Like, you just, there's some really stern warnings about adding to God's Word and taking away from it and saying, there's a trajectory that I can see outside of this that this was all pointing to is adding on. The second problem with this is that it says the authority for where this end point goes eventually is really me in my cultural moment. Me in my cultural moment. See, who determines what enlightenment means? I, I become the arbitra- arbiter of like what, where the Bible's actually going to. And there's no real place to stand in that. See, what you end up in that moment is Thomas Jefferson who says, this is cultural and I dismiss it. This is timeless and I keep it. Instead of saying, all of it's cultural and all of it's timeless and I've got to find a way to listen to and be faithful to obey what I read in this book. Um, ultimately, um, it also says, God, you're a terrible communicator. Because as you read this, it's it's really hard to move past the like face value of like this is really what Paul says. We don't like it, um, but only you're saying God could have put in more clarity on this if He wanted to change this. And this is I just want to be honest about those things. So, um, but let me end here, and, and I, I just want to say, look, I know that this sermon makes me about as popular as a guy who farts in an elevator. <laughs> like everybody's just like. I just want to get away from you right now, and uh, I don't want to look at you, and I, this is awkward, right? Um, but I, I think it's really important, not just what we believe, but how we hold it as a church. Like, this is really actually where the rubber meets the road, and so I, I want to give some affirmations and denials, and if, if you disagree with every other part of this sermon right now, that's okay, but I want you to hear this part really clearly. Um, number one, sexism is always wrong. Uh, jokes, jabs, uh, glosses, statements, um, joking between dudes, it's always wrong. And I, I just want to acknowledge, maybe you're a woman in this congregation who's been deeply hurt by someone in my position. And you've never heard somebody say this to you, and I'm just going to say this to you, because I want you to hear some pastor in a complementary church own this. I am deeply sorry. I'm deeply sorry. There has been so much damage been done to women by the church who have held these things in a way that puts down women, um, makes less of their gifts, um, even um, 
uses women in ways that are really uh, degrading. And I I just want to say I'm sorry on behalf of pastors and churches. Um, Second, we want to be in our church as liberal as Scripture is liberal and as conservative as Scripture is conservative. Um, That's why, on the one hand, we just can't erase passages like this. I have to figure out a way to teach on this and do so responsibly as one of your pastors here. But at the same time, we're not just a Southern traditionalist church that's like, let's, let's do what everybody else does unthinkingly. Um, we, we, we don't have elders doing everything in all parts of our worship just to be safe, uh, like leading liturgy or reading Scripture or serving communion. Uh, we need... We, We don't want to be more free than the Bible's free, and we don't want to be more conservative than the Bible's conservative. Um, It was actually Pharisees who were critiqued by Jesus for being overly careful with God's Word in order to make sure that everything was safe. We don't want to be in that role. Um, Third, CTK holds to the NOM principle, the NOM principle. That is, a woman should be doing everything in our church that a non-ordained man, NOM, Nam uh, should be doing in our church. Um, leading music teams, discipling others, teaching a class, leading a small group, leading liturgy, working alongside our elders on our, on our shepherding team, leading key ministries, overseeing outreach programs, counseling on staff. We have women leading liturgy as a regular practice on Sundays in our church because we're trying to capture this, what we see in the New Testament of women prophesying. That's one of the reasons we do that. Now, we are very careful to guard what's happening right now. What happens with, when there's preaching from the front combined with the sacrament, the Lord's table, we say this is the place where there is authoritative teaching, that it's connected, it's authoritative for two reasons. One is it's agreed upon according to the, the theology of our church, and the second is it's backed up with what we do every Sunday when we take the Lord's Supper where we recognize who's in and who's not. So this is where we, we exercise this, teaching with authority in 1 Corinthians 2 and 14. So let me say it this way. Our officers are men, ordained men. Our priesthood is all believers. You hear me? Our officers are ordained men. Our priesthood is every person in this room. Uh, number four, CTK affirms women in all their gifting and value. We don't just want... We need the voices of women in our church. We need your gifts. We need your leadership. We need your insights. We need your knowledge. We need your perspectives. Um, look, just because we believe that there are gender specialties doesn't mean that we believe men good, women bad. And, and um, if men and women are interchangeable, we wouldn't ma- it wouldn't matter. But we're, we're saying we really need all the gifts of all the people. Uh, Number five, we're going to continue, like I'm doing this morning, to use the contribution of women in sermons. You'll hear me quote women, do research. There's a lot of valuable scholarship and teaching that have come from women. Number six, we live in peace with other churches who disagree with us on these passages. I can be and am friends with women who are pastors, right? Uh, I don't go and confront them and say, you're sinning. I know it may be funny, but I'm serious. I, I, like, I, I'm not confronting. I, I disagree with them. I think, hey, you got, I, I disagree with your interpretation of these passages. But it is, 
God holds out for us, like, it's really important that we live at peace with people who agree with 99% of the rest of the doctrine of Scripture. Man, we better live in peace with them. We better promote and encourage other churches and be about the unity of the body and celebrate that and love that. You know, it is a signature sin of our denomination that we're so right that we actually tend to be kind of isolated and unkind toward churches with women pastors. And that's just wrong. So those are my affirmations. Here are my denials. Um, Number one, we're on the slippery slope to liberalism at CTK. Nope. You know, um, there's no slippery slope when a group of people are trying to obey God's Word. That's not a slippery slope. We're trying to be faithful to God's Word. Number two, uh, we're sexist. Man, I pray not. I pray not. One of the things we most look for in elder candidates is men who can carry on an intelligent conversation with a woman who can look women in the eye and respect them and honor what they have to say and listen really well. That's so important to us. Uh, Number three, we're ignorant. Nope. I mean, this is not popular teaching. And it's not something that we've come to because we refuse to read everything else. Man, I've read a ton for this series. I've read a ton over years. And we are always wanting to learn, okay? Um, But this isn't happy ignorance, um, number four, this is unjust. I hear this a lot in um, regard to male-only eldership, and, and I understand. I just want to validate that this, for many women, feels unjust. And I understand exactly why you would say that. Um, and yet, justice, however, is whatever God decrees. Um, so whether or not you can see the justice in divinely created gender and gender specialties largely depends on how much we trust God's character. I mean, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Uh, Can we define justice as anything other than God's design? Um, And if we do so, using what as our guide? Uh, Anne Voskamp, in her book, uh, 1,000 Gifts, puts it this way. She says, God gave us Jesus. Jesus gave him up for us all. If we have only one memory, isn't that enough? If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with rough wood on raw wounds, thorns pressed into the brow, and your name on his cracked lips? How will he not also graciously give us all things he deems best and right? He's already given us the incomprehensible. You know, um, as I said at the beginning of the series, I think gender is a gift that the modern church would rather return to God. I'm like, hey, thanks very much. Um, can you take this one back and exchange it for something better? And yet, gender is a gift. Gender is even God's gift to you. The way He's made you, the, the way He's designed you, that is not accidental or purposeless. And we as a church want to celebrate that and rejoice, even where it's hard for us to see, like, why? Why is it this way? God is good, and He gives good gifts to His people. And I pray that we can live together in peace as a community that knows how to love and celebrate His Word and one another. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.